Good afternoon. Those of you who can read the uh, sign on the front of the lectern, see this is identified as a Jefferson Symposium. That label reflects the fact that the event is sponsored by the Thomas Jefferson Center for the Protection of Free Expression, an organization devoted to the defense of free expression in all of its forms. It is also co-sponsored by the Virginia chapters of the American Constitution Society and the Federalist Society. And of course, as you can tell, we are hosted by the <laughs> University of Virginia Law School. Uh, in August of this year, uh, the Dean of Students of the University of Chicago sent a letter to all incoming first-year students. Uh, welcome letters are standard, usually quite anodyne. Mostly, they are limited to congratulating the students on being admitted to such a fabulous university and congratulating the university on attracting such fabulous students. That's about as far as they typically go. The Chicago letter, however, had a point. It proclaimed as one of the university's, quote, defining characteristics, a commitment to freedom of inquiry and expression, and went on to say that this commitment meant that, quote, we do not support trigger warnings, we do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial. We do not condone the creation of individual safe spaces where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. There are two remarkable things about this letter. The first is that the Dean of Students felt the need to endorse free speech on campus. And the second is the reaction it drew. Uh, newspaper editorialists generally praised the letter, but nearly 200 Chicago faculty went to the trouble of sending a competing letter to incoming students, criticizing the administration and endorsing unspecified forms of student activism. And the president of the University of Chicago's student government called the dean's letter messed up and hypocritical. Uh, both the dean and his critics uh, we're responding, I think, not so much to each other as to recent events that have raised questions of free speech on campus in new and unexpected ways. Historically, American colleges and universities have been uh, autonomous outposts of liberal sensibility. They usually invoked freedom of speech to resist outside <laughs> interference and regulation. For public universities, that outside interference usually meant government. For private schools, it more likely meant boards of trustees and alumni groups. In either case, the political direction of attempts to limit free speech on campus, historically, was usually conservative. Advocates of limiting free speech sought to protect public order or to maintain traditional moral values against the uh, looser standards of campus life. Today, calls for limiting free speech on campus come primarily from inside the university, and they come primarily from the left, often seeking to restrict, restrict speech in order to protect minorities, racial and otherwise, and to promote equality. There's nothing new about these concerns. They all have a long history, but there is something new about the political realignment of free speech on campus. And there is also something new, it seems to me, generationally. Throughout most of my lifetime, 
commitment to free speech by the younger generation consistently exceeded that of the elder. And now that seems to be shifting. Today, I think students are more skeptical of free speech than their parents and less tolerant of the harms that unfettered speech can do than their parents. The roles of youth and age seem to have been reversed. And we have um, a panel assembled to discuss these changes and explore their meanings. Uh, and the three persons to my right I will introduce. This panel is addresses, addresses free speech in and out of the classroom. We had planned to have two speakers from in the classroom and two speakers from out. I regret to say we are missing Ed Ayers. He's the president emeritus of the University of Richmond. And uh, he, his family has suffered a medical emergency, which we hope but do not yet know will come out all right. But fortunately, we recruited such a superfluity of riches that we can go on without Ed Ayers. And I'm going to start at the far end. And I'll introduce all of you, if I may, and then let you speak in turn. Uh, Blake Durant, Durant at the far end is a double who, which is local lingo for an alumnus of both the college and the law school. For me, he presents the particular pleasure of introducing a student made good. He graduated from the law school in 1978. He served with distinction in the Judge Advocate General's Corps of the United States Army and moved to some prestigious positions in that organization. He practiced law in Washington, D.C., represented the Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority in its salad days, visited here and there and held full-time teaching positions at the University of Toledo College of Law, Washington Lee Law School, Wake Forest University, and now George Washington University. Aside from this disturbing inability to hold a job, he is, <laughs> he is completely admirable. From 2007 to 2014, Blake was the dean at Wake Forest, where he gained a national reputation uh, in the halls of academy for being a far-sighted uh, leader in legal education and particularly an outspoken advocate of student interest. And in 2014, he became the dean at George Washington. Somewhere along the way, he found the time to become president of the Association of American Law Schools, which he served in 2015. He's been recognized by National Jurist Magazine as one of the 10 most influential people in legal education, and we're very glad to have you. Uh, the next two panelists, both <coughs> board members, members of the Board of Trustees of the Thomas Jefferson Center, though that is scarcely their foremost distinction. Uh, <laughs> Kelly Carlin, who is immediately to my right, has been described as a, a writer, an actress, a producer, a monologist, and an internet radio host. Uh, she describes herself as a thinker, talker, and doodler. She is, among other things, the daughter of George Carlin, for whom I would hesitate to attempt any description. <laughs> He was at least a stand-up comedian and a social critic of note and much else besides. And Mr. Carlin knew a thing or two from personal experience about free speech and the limits thereof. Uh, Kelly recounts some of this history with humor and insight and empathy in her 2015 memoir, Carlin Home Companion, which I have read and commend to your attention. It is her connection both familial and personal with the world of performance that makes her unique among the participants in this symposium and especially welcome. 
And the person in the middle is Dahlia Lithwick. She brings a, a, a similar reach, but from a different direction. Dahlia is a graduate of Yale College and the Stanford Law School. Unlike a few of us here, she has actual practice experience. <laughs> but you know her less as a practicing lawyer than as a senior editor at Slate, where she focuses on legal issues and the courts. <coughs> Lawyers, or at any rate, law professors, uh, tend to bemoan press coverage of the courts. Too often complicated legal issues are presented as crude political preferences. That's not wholly untrue, but the reductionism is disturbing. This is a stand of which Dahlia Lithwick is emphatically not guilty. She's both a good lawyer and a good reporter. Her work is legally sophisticated and politically astute and above all fun. She is, in my opinion, the nation's best journalist on law in the courts, no and how appropriate it is that she works chiefly on the web, where the center of gravity now lies. <laughs> so with that, uh, welcome our panelists, and Blake, I'll turn the podium over to you. Thank you so much, John, and thank you so much for the center, the Thomas Jefferson Center. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to address on this subject. I'm so glad so many of you are here today to talk about this. I'm very much humbled by John's introduction of me, and I have a PowerPoint here, and hopefully this is going to work. So let me go immediately to this slide. You, any of you who know pop culture, know that this is Mary Tyler Moore and Mr. Grant from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. So I want to tell you what happened as a result of me coming here today. So I get a call from John, and John tells me about this symposium and that it would be great if you were presented this. Now, I'm not a constitutional law scholar. I am the dean of a law school. But he said, you know about speech. You deal with, with student speech. And I basically said, now, how am I going to deal with this in a way that's going to be learned enough for this astute audience? And I said, I don't think I should do this. And then I thought back to my wife's favorite program, which is this one. And you remember how Mary Tallimore could never say no to Mr. Grant? <laughs> I couldn't say no to John in that same way. And as I thought about this show as well, if you look at pop culture, there's so many examples of how student speech sort of folds into that particular cultural norm. In this particular show, there was an episode where they covered student protests. And the common theme that came through was how do we control them? How do we control them? Even though 45 years ago, that was one of the key factors. So here's what I'd like to deal with as I talk about this subject and really go back in dealing with this task. And here's some of the things I want to put forward. Now, as I said, I'm not a constitutional law scholar, and I decided I wanted to really take this from a more practical vein. And that is looking at what we can do in order to not only maintain student free speech, but also, and this is the common denominator that I have heard from many different presidents, from many different deans, indeed many administrators who are dealing with this, how do we instill in our students the sense of responsibility and civility along with speech. So I want you to keep that in mind as we sort of go along. My frame of reference is not that we have to give them a sense of that,
but they have to be vested in that in some way. And I want to give a couple of clues as to how I've tried to do that. And the other thing I want to talk about and sort of put within the framework of all of this is the sort of proactive engagement mm -hmm. that administrators have to have in order to instill that sense of vestment. So moving right along, this is a hot topic, as everybody knows. And I want to tell you, John had mentioned that I was the 2015 president of the Association of American Law Schools. And even though the conversation about American legal education has really been formulated about what's happening in law schools, I dare say that the issues that legal education is facing are issues that are endemic in all of higher education. This came front and center to me as I was basically talking about American legal education all over the country. And the one thing that became very clear to me as I realized that synergy between what we were dealing with the legal education and all of higher education were the issues of how do we get students to understand the professionalism that goes with what you do after you leave school. And that professionalism has to deal with not only how you express yourself, but how you are able to get others to coalesce in what you're doing. And so as I talked about that, I began to talk with a variety of different university professors and even convened a number of them at George Washington to talk about that very same issue. And needless to say, at college campuses all over the country, we have seen an explosion of this. I put up for you, I put up for you a number of different schools that have had this issue. All of us are fairly much aware of the University of Missouri. And you remember at the University of Missouri, we had a number of students who basically protested the climate that was on their particular campuses. And many of these students really were worried about the actual inclusiveness of their particular uh, situations. What happened in that particular vein was that you had an administration that really did not engage the students fairly fully. Now, I just got back from giving a talk at the University of California, Irvine, and one of my co-presenters is the current interim president of the University of Missouri. And I took him aside to ask him, what is the situation that really led to what went on, and what do you think you can do in order to really fix it? And this is Dr. Middleton, and he said in, in, in short, the first administration refused to engage the students at all when they came up with this particular comment. However, I think their particular problem was that they didn't engage the students before it became a problem. And now he's instituting a number of things in order to really make sure that that happens. At Yale University, a number of different protests with regard to climate and also with regard to the school's legacy, which had to do with sort of institutions of slavery and others. At American University, my neighboring school, there was a student protest that grew out of students leaving banana peels in the rooms of minority students. And the administration is now trying to address the situation. How do we get our students to be more civil in what they do? And note that they're being reactive rather than proactive. At my own institution at George Washington, we haven't had an incident but we had all of the deans get together to talk with student groups about whether or not there is an issue with regard to student expression and how we should deal with it. And in the context of that conversation, two things came out. First of all, that many of the students felt it was okay to express themselves, 
but they felt the need to do that more demonstratively because the administration had never engaged them outside of class. That was one. And the other was the increased sense that faculty members were not as sensitive to the needs of students as they should have been. And then the last is the University of Cape Town. And I had the occasion to give an endowed lecture there at the end of August. And if you keep up with the news right now, there is a protest which has shut down the entire university. And the crux of that protest, even though it has to do with the increase of student fees, has to do also with the idea of whether or not students are being heard on their campuses. Now, at the University of Cape Town, as it's being uh, played out right now, the students are expressing themselves in a very, very demonstrative way. But the common thread that it has with all of the other universities is that prior to their demonstrative talk, there was no proactive engagement with the students at all. So what is at the crux of all of this? And as I looked at all of these variety of institutions and talked with these variety of individuals, the real crux of this has to do with this tension that exists between the student's right to speak and the administrator's uh, goal, if you will, to have a civil educational setting. And in many instances, when I talk with a variety of my colleagues and those who are in the profession, trying to get those two balanced is the key to not only making sure the students exercise their rights, but also that they understand that to hear one another, one should appreciate the civility notion that has to go into that dynamic. Now, as I said, I'm not a constitutional law scholar, but I put up a number of different cases that really apply to this. And instead of going through the cases in and of themselves, what I'd like to do is really give you much more of a context of these cases, as I've been told. Now, the more normative idea that goes through all the various case notions is this idea that regulatory norms that are trying to be put in by administrators in order to curb the civility or curb speech in order to maintain civility, come to the court with a great degree of suspicion. And all of these cases basically have this. But what I really wanted to do was get a sense of what was the backdrop of all of this. Now, for many of you who've gone to law school, you know we always study cases in a casebook. And I tell my students, that doesn't give you the entire story. You really have to get behind it to really understand it. And being in Washington, this is one of the advantages of being located where we are because very often we get in touch with and have various members of the federal judiciary visit our school. And in fact, in the last several years, we've had Justice Ginsburg and also Elena Kagan visit the school. And I've, had, I've taken them aside and I asked them, give me a sense of where the court really stands with regard to the appreciation of what administrators are trying to do in maintaining civility. And this recognition of the fact that they have to do that within the confines of understanding that students have the right for free speech. Now, if any of you have talked to the justices, they don't like to deconstruct their cases. Mm -hmm. So your best bet to do this is to take them to their favorite restaurant, <laughs> get them their favorite glass of wine, and then you say, this will not go any farther than this room. <laughs> and so notwithstanding making that particular promise, that I did get out of them, don't tell anybody, I did get out of them this sense of looking at the totality of this, this casework. And Justice Ginsburg says something to me that I thought was very probative, and that is, 
the justices are very, very sensitive to what administrators have to do in terms of maintaining civility in their campuses. Now, this is not only at universities, it's also for secondary schools as well. And as you know, I don't have the case here, but Tinker and his progeny deals with all of the various cases in secondary school. And from what I gather, the justices are very sympathetic to administrators trying to maintain that sense of civility. What you don't see in the cases, which is one of the things that I'm trying to push in a variety of different settings, is that they also appreciate that from a pedagogical standpoint, it would be great for students to learn why civility is an important part of the free speech exercise. You don't see that in the cases necessarily. But the justices recognize that as a very, very good pedagogical tool to have. But at the bottom line, the more normative fact that comes out of this is the idea that you can't restrict the student's speech. Somehow, you've got to figure out a way for the students to appreciate the civility norm so that they adopt that in their own context. So how do we do this? And so I'm going back anecdotally to my own sort of a way of thinking about this and how I've tried to do it. Now, as dean of two schools, I don't get a chance to teach very much. And I've got to say, that is a true, true surprise to me because I came into this enterprise to teach and do scholarship and I said I would never become a dean and look where I sit right now. But the one thing that I decided to do when I was teaching and even when I teach seminars today is two constructs. Number one, and remember how I talked about professionalism and what that means. Now it does take into this whole realm of ethics and competency and knowing your role well and everything like that. But one of the things that really hasn't been emphasized as much is this idea of how do I get to persuade other individuals? And what can I do to work with other individuals in order to maintain my sense of mission and purpose? That is an integral part of professionalism. And I weave that into every single course that I try to teach. And so when I teach, and particularly in my seminars, I keep that in mind. And the whole idea of getting student investment in this idea of how do I get others to listen to me and how do I make sure I'm heard and appreciated. And usually they get that if they appreciate civility. So I have two classes up there that I've taught, and I want to tell you about exercises that I've done in both. The first is the law of public education. And this is a basic class that teaches students about all the various intricate policies, regulations that go into secondary education. And I taught this course while I was teaching at Washington and Lee University. And so what I try to do with the students, instead of just going through and looking at the doctrinal notions that go into all of these precepts, is to get them to work tangibly with other individuals to understand the learning process is really holistic in terms of dealing with other people. And also to get the students to understand that they have to communicate with people who are not necessarily within their general orbit. So what I do in this class is that I divide the class up into groups. I call them mini law firms. And before the class begins, I go into the local school system and I talk with the superintendent and I also talk with various teachers and what have you to come up with problems for the students to work on in this group. Now, I don't know if many of you are familiar with Lexington and Rockbridge County, but it's a very diverse county in terms of socioeconomics. 
You have a number of different individuals who teach at the two colleges that are there in the city. But then you have a vast population of individuals, many of whom haven't gone to college, many of whom are working in fairly in, in challenging situations. And they're all going to this one school system. So it's a very interesting sort of set of circumstances that give rise to various <laughs> problems. So when I went to the school to get a problem for one of my groups, I asked the principal, can you give me a problem that I could give to my class? Because they're going to research this problem holistically. They're going to talk with you. They're going to talk with students. They're going to talk with parents. They're going to talk among themselves. They're going to do research in order to come up with a possible solution for your problem. So as I sat there with my notebook, the principal said, Professor Moran, I have the perfect problem for your students to work on. I eagerly get my pad out. And he says, tell them to author a policy where students can no longer wear the Confederate flag in school. And I sat back and I looked at this, I said, my God, I did want to have a very interesting problem, but I certainly didn't want to have one that was going to explode all over the county. But then I thought about it and I said, well, you know, this is one of the realistic situations that I want my students to really understand and to understand how the rule of law can be worked in order to really solve a vexing problem, particularly in the school system. So we took the problem and I gave it to the students and I gave them the parameters to work on. They had to work in a group. They had to discuss the problem among themselves. They had to interview the principal. They had to interview students. They had to interview parents and all of those in order to come up with a holistic solution to the problem. Now, of course, on its face, remember the normative regulatory constructs of free speech, which would normally basically say you cannot restrict various forms of expression, whether it be oral or expressive, if it carries for an idea. And that's where the students started. But then, as they interviewed the various parties who were involved, the students recognized that in order to carry forward in a civil, uh, a civil environment, they had to give some kind of construct that would help the principal maintain that. So after a lot of research and a lot of talking, talking with students and everything, they came up with a policy, and that policy was this, that the schools was able to, for any school event, any kind of symbols that would be uh, worn by the students could only be, and if they were flags, U.S., Virginia, or school flags, with those who wanted to wear any other kind of emblem asking for prior permission or submitting it to the principal. So it was interesting. Now, the school didn't actually adopt that principle, but I asked the students what made them come up with this. And it's interesting to hear their whole construct about this, because their whole construct was when we started, we wanted to tell the principal there's absolutely no way that you could do this. But after talking with the principal, talking with students, talking with parents, they then became more sympathetic to what the principals were trying to do with regard to civility in the classroom. And they came up with this basic policy. It was one that didn't forbid the speech, but it actually gave students an opportunity to think about whether or not they should engage in the kind of speech that they wanted. One of the most gratifying things that I had, and I always shudder sometimes when I read my student evaluations when I do a project like this, is whether or not the students get an appreciation of it. And I kept my evaluations, and there's a segment of them that I would like to read to you from these very same students who worked on this problem. And this is one one student said in an excerpt. 
I've never been in a public school in my life, and I thought that this project would be an easy one based on the fact that people should be able to wear and express themselves in any way they choose. This is America. This is democracy. But then the student went on to say, I gained a tremendous appreciation for the problems faced by those who administer schools. And as a result of that, I ultimately agreed with the idea of having at least this overall construct for the kinds of symbols that would be worn and for those who want to wear something different that they would submit it to the principal. I've also come to a very fundamental sense of my own mission. And that is, I do not ever want to become a high school principal. <laughs> Insightful things that we get from our students from this. And I would dare say if I were to summarize a lot of the evaluations that I received, many of the students said, and, and I've got to say, many of the students that I taught at Washington Lee, many of them either hadn't gone to public school or certainly not a public school such as this, they began to appreciate different points of view and how different points of view can only be shared if there is this air of civility. My second class is a communications uh, law class, and I taught this as a joint seminar, both with undergraduates and with law students. And again, the whole idea here, because very often we're criticized for not getting students to understand the collaborative nature of problem solving. So I broke this class up into groups again and gave them various kinds of problems. And the one problem that I want to share with you that these students worked on was this problem that had to do with whether or not student publications, this is at the college level, should self-censor, if I should use that word, information about a student who has died. So let me give you the scenario for that. In a variety of different segments that we've had at, at various universities, a student may pass away. And the question is whether or not the student publication, once it does its investigation with regard to the circumstances of the student's death, whether they should publicize all of those various details before the next of kin knows about this. Now, I will tell you, as a dean of a law school, unfortunately, I've been in the position of having that situation happen. And certainly, when you are ministering to an individual whose child has, has, has uh, passed away prematurely, you certainly would like for your institution to be as sensitive as it possibly can under these very difficult circumstances. So there was an incident that happened at the school where the publication had done a great degree of research. It was mysterious how this student had passed away. And in their zeal, in order to really be the kind of first to give the information out on a very, very noteworthy matter, they decided to publish that this individual who had basically died by virtue of suicide had also died by an overdose of drugs that were provided by another student. The parents of the deceased had not been notified and as a result of that, the parents were very nonplussed by finding out about the circumstances of their child's death and certainly not very happy with the university for having this published in their paper. So this was the genesis of this problem, is whether or not how 
should we deal with? How should student publications deal with sensitive matters such as this prior to the time that the family of the deceased knows about the situation? So I gave this to the students. And so the conversation among the students was very robust. And it was very robust from the standpoint of starting with, why are we doing this at all? Because basic First Amendment notions say that we should be able to publish whatever we like, when we like, as long as it's true. And that's where they started. But then, as I, as I said before, you get them to research these things holistically. So when they research it, or they research it doctrinally, that's the conclusion that they come to. We should be able to publish anything we like. But then they began to talk to a variety of different individuals. They talked to the friends of students, of the students who are deceased. They talked to family members of individuals who are the family members uh, who had experienced the loss of a child. They also spoke to other professional organizations that have ethical codes. And eventually they came up with this particular code. It's an internal ethical code, noting that the details of students' deaths to be published only after the next of kin have been notified. And so it's interesting that they came up with this notion, but the key here is why they came up with the notion. And in each part of the evaluation, they talked about how they started with the doctrinal or the, the, the normative function of being able to say what they wanted to say when they wanted to say it as long as it was true. And they talked about, I talked with the parents of those who had died. We talked with the siblings of those who had died. We also talked with various other news concerns that had given information prior to the next kin being notified and what the repercussions of that were. And in each case, we were very moved, not only by the, what we heard from the family members, but also in terms of whether or not we were doing a service in terms of ensuring that individuals would have a great degree of credibility in our particular publication. Now that was a magic moment where they thought about the credibility of their particular publication and they came up with this code. So here's what I'd like to sort of, sort of end with, and this is why I think this is really very important. If there's anything that I've learned in my own sort of conversation with university presidents and sort of looking at the overall doctrine and actually teaching my students is this. The first is that I do believe that administrators should be proactive with regard to a consistent communication with students so that they understand this notion of civility. In every single instance of all of those schools that I gave you, the proactivity of the administration was very minimal. The reactive nature was very good, but that was after the student speech itself. I also pose to you that proactive engagement is really a very good precursor to having civil debate. And this is what we're dealing with at George Washington. And so after seeing what was happening at other universities, the president at George Washington decided to get all of the deans together to meet with the student groups on a very regular basis. And I'm not saying that that has now led to the fact that we haven't had 
in, in, uh, uh, basis of, of incivility on campus. But I will say this, that the students have all recognized, and I've heard this from them, them individually, that that engagement basically gives them a sensitivity to the notion of how to express themselves. I also recognize that we as teachers, and all of us here are teachers in one way or the other, have an obligation to really educate our students on not only the value of civility, but how it folds in to their ability to be persuasive. So when I deconstructed this with my class at the very end, I basically asked them, what did you think about working with your other colleagues to come up with these various things? And so I got these variety of different comments about, well, at first, I thought this was really weird because how am I going to be evaluated if I'm working in this group? But toward the end, it was very helpful to me because I began to listen to other individuals and their points of view. And I recognized the fact if I was going to be listened to, I had to be given or given the other person the space to express themselves. And here's one of the keys that makes teaching one of the most gratifying things. So where the student said, I recognized the fact that I could not get my point across unless I respected the other person's ability to get their point across. Lastly, and I put this under the term of never take your eye off of the ball. This is a constant work in progress. And one of the things that I've talked about, and certainly I've talked among my fellow deans, is this idea of how do we systematically have occasions for our students to have this kind of engagement so that they can understand the civility notion of speech. I've done it in, in some of my classes, but I think it's something that could be, be endemic in a lot of the things that the university does in terms of really engaging the students on a first-time basis. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I look forward to my other panels and the panelists. And very, thank you very much for indulging an individual who now has students who refuse to become principals <laughs> of the of college. apologizing uh, and saying that I have bronchitis and I am not talking to you in my to me more sexy voice but in fact I really am <laughs> sick and I'm sorry um, and I'm gonna cough <clears throat> um, I uh, come to this uh, like Blake does I'm not a constitutional scholar I come to this problem as a journalist and uh, you know before I say that let me say thank you to the Jefferson Center uh, to UVA uh, and to the amazing uh, folks you've assembled here this is uh, an impressive brain trust and no better people to learn with and learn from. Um, so I, I just want to start by saying, you know, I, I come to this as a journalist and this is a really interesting problem because um, where this has played out, the things that John Jeffries described, you know, the controversies we've had even in the last year on campus, where it's played out in some ways in the most toxic fashion has been in the press. 
And it seems to me that journalists have been really complicit in turning uh, a very, very complicated and fraught problem into a more complicated and fraught problem that is often presented, I think, in very cartoonish ways. Uh, you know, coddled babies on campus want another blanket versus, you know, evil um, uh, white male administrators who want to continue to oppress minorities. Like, that's not a useful conversation, and yet <laughs> it's often framed that way, and I think very much to our peril. And so just as a, a precatory note, I, I would say <clears throat> this is a problem for those of us who value both free speech and universities uh, because it presents a clash of two values that we hold very, very dear to us. And to me, the most interesting part of watching the journalism around this issue has been watching the left fracture around this so that you can see you know, the ACLU uh, is at odds uh, with, with all sorts of minority uh, rights groups, both of whom I think in effect we could say have real merit to their positions, both of whom are sort of empirically right in some of their claims, but not, I think, right in uh, solving the problem. And so I just want to suggest that um, I think this has engendered friction in part because we've been very sloppy in talking about it. And I've been to a lot of panels on this subject in the past year, and I think if we don't very quickly define terms, if we don't very quickly disaggregate trigger warnings from safe spaces, from punishment of uh, students who do overtly racist things, from censorship of school papers, those are all really different problems. And to conflate them all as sort of this massive monolith of uh, you know, student speech claims on campus is, I think, to really, really miss a problem that we have to define with some clarity and precision if we're going to move forward. So in addition to, I think, the cartoonish portrayals of the interests here, in addition to, I think, conflating a whole host of different things we've seen on campus and then treating them as though they're all the same thing, I think the other thing <coughs> that we really suffer from terribly in this conversation, and this goes to Blake's point, I think, is a complete lack of empathy for the interests on the other side. And so I think really it seems to me that these kinds of conversations that we're having here need to be happening all the time. And there needs to be a deeper understanding that this is not a fight between bossy white academic men who want to continue punching down and you know, coddled uh, 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 students who just you know, want to be back in the womb. This is much, much more complicated than that. And I think we, thank you. Uh, I think we need to really, really think beyond uh, the framing that we've largely get, been given, and in this part I would say by a sometimes um, lazy media. So just in the interest of setting the table, and I think some of these points have been made already, but uh, you know, uh, Greg Lukianoff, um, President and Chief Executive of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, almost a year ago this month put forward in a big, big piece a cover story for The Atlantic uh, the, the proposition that this all rep represents, quote, the coddling of uh, the American mind. And he went on to list a whole host of things, some of which you've heard, comedians who stop coming to campus because they don't want to be shouted down anymore, uh, a professor at Yale who's advised that she cannot teach rape law using rape language because it's triggering, uh, Laura Kipnis at Northwestern who's subject to a Title uh, IX complaint about an article that she wrote. You know, this is a huge panoply of actions that happen on campus in addition to what we're hearing about at Yale, at 
Missouri, um, you know, the complete collapse of civil discourse in gotcha snippets of video that then go viral as though to implicate an entire group of protesters uh, on either side. And maybe more troubling, really, really deep cuts at, for instance, the Wesleyan student newspaper based on an article that was printed that could have been printed in any uh, you know, right-wing columnist newspaper, but actual funding being caught and actual funding at student um, uh, professors. And this really, I think, escalates when you have, again, at Missouri, protesters chasing out reporters and saying this can't be covered, having to sign a pledge as a reporter that you will cover a, a topic that you agree with, but if you don't agree with it, you can be bounced out of the room. And the real implications, I think, for student press that have to be a central part of this conversation. And all this culminates, as John Jeffries suggests, in the letter that goes out to University of Chicago freshmen saying, welcome to school. We sure hope you don't have feelings. Um, and, and, you know, this, this uh, scene as a really, you know, savvy and sophisticated <coughs> response to uh, a panoply of the problems um, I've, you know, just listed. And so what I want to suggest is that for one thing, and this is, this is important from that Atlantic article last year that I think at least triggered this wave of discourse in the media around the subject, this is not the same as the wave of, quote, political correctness and speech codes we saw on campus, you know, when I was coming up not that long ago. This is a very different proposition, a huge part of it informed by new media, by the ability to create a record on a camera. So this is not same old, same old. This is, I think, an escalation, you know, both in kind and, and really in meaning, in existential meaning of what uh, we've been seeing for the last decades. <clears throat> so what are the claims of the folks that are seeking trigger warnings, a stop to what they call microaggressions and safe spaces. They're not in any way unreasonable claims. What they're saying is this isn't just speech, that this is speech that leads to hateful acts, and that sometimes it itself is experienced as an assault. And that this is not, you know, to say this is just speech is to not understand the effect that speech can have on you as a student isolated in a college away from home, possibly from the first time. Their claim is that the campus is a special place, and I think this is another point that Blake makes so artfully. This is not the real world. This is a place that's supposed to be fomenting something that is not quite the real world, and that it has an obligation to protect you from the most brutal components of real world discourse. And I think most profoundly their claim is, again, it doesn't sound wrong to me, that this isn't necessarily about free speech, but license for privileged groups to offend and marginalize and put down groups that have historically been offended and marginalized before. And so this is not a playing field that is necessarily equal. This is a playing field that benefits groups that have always uh, been benefit, and they want to level the playing field. So that's the arguments on the one side, and of course the claims on the other are pretty self-evident. And here I would just quote David Baugh, who is the African-American lawyer who initially uh, represented Barry Black in the cross-burning case at the Supreme Court. And when asked about the campus speech problem, he said, look, part of being an American is the obligation to listen to language that makes you uncomfortable. And Braided into that response, I would say I did a panel um, a few months ago and listened um, uh, to Ted Shaw from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who's as conflicted as I am 
about these issues. And his point was that as soon as you start restricting speech ostensibly to protect disadvantaged groups, you know who always gets it in the end? The disadvantaged groups. That it is invariably, in his view, the African American who is hurt more by speech codes and attempts to protect minorities than anyone else. And that's the slippery slope that he fears. So the arguments on this side, of course, are the self-evident First Amendment arguments, that the cure for bad speech is more speech. And the way to air bad ideas is to discuss them and not to suppress them. And that college exists to teach critical thinking and to shape minds. And if you protect people from any idea that they find offensive, you are not doing the foundational work that colleges are meant to be doing. And I think the coda to all that is that coddled children who are protected from any bad words that they don't want to hear cannot then go out into the world and function the way Blake is suggesting we need to function out in the world, that college is not the place to remove uh, uh, real meaningful discourse in the interest of pure civility. So those are the arguments. I want to just tell you what students want, and I think, again, John Jeffries hinted at this, but this is the part that's quite dispiriting. I don't know if you've seen the Gallup poll from 2016 that shows that regardless of the academic abstract argument that we may have in this room, students really, really like the idea of suppressing speech. And 69% of students polled in this recent Gallup poll say that they think that there should be speech codes that restrict slurs or offensive language. 69% approve of such speech codes. 63% want schools to restrict any costumes that stereotype racial or ethnic groups. 49% support restricting the media's right to cover protests. Let me say that again. 49% of students polled favor some restrictions on the media's right to cover a protest. 54% of students believe that campus climates quote, prevent people from saying things that they would like to say. So there is an enormous, I think, conflict right there, where we have students who want more restriction of speech, but also feel that they are not themselves free to speak. And it seems to be that that is the paradox at the heart of this conversation around speech, that everyone wants more free speech for themselves and wants to be able to say exactly what they want to say on campus, but they want to hear less and less speech that offends them. So I want to just make this point, because I think it's so crucial to the conversation that will happen in the next two days. It is so critically important for purposes of this conversation to disaggregate all of the different pieces of what we call speech suppressive con conduct uh, uh, regulation on campus. And that means that disinviting speakers from campuses is one problem. It is a separate problem from shouting down speakers at protests, which is a separate problem from defunding newspapers or regulating what newspapers can publish, which is a separate problem from disciplining fraternities or student groups for costumes they may wear or events they may hold, which is in itself a different problem for demands inside the classroom for trigger warnings or safe spaces to discuss complicated and fraught issues, which in itself is a different problem from campus speech codes, which uh, include the 10 UC campuses this year that have enacted regulations suggesting that discussing criticism of Israel can be construed as anti-Semitism. That in itself is a different problem from the discipline of academics for things they may post online. These are not the same 
problem. They do not carry with them the same First Amendment interests, and they do not carry with them the same pedagogical interests. And so going forward, it seems to me, unless we can be very crisp in defining what we are talking about when we talk about campus speech and the blowback to campus speech, this is an almost impossible conversation to have. <laughs> Also, I would just say that it is not in any way useful for us to be talking about this in terms of calling student special snowflakes on the one hand and deriding their interests, or alternatively, <coughs> in really saying that institutions have a deeply entrenched interest in punching down to disadvantaged minorities. None of those stereotypes are true, so I think we have to have a much more open-hearted understanding of what the interests on the other side are. And I just want to conclude by reading two of, I think, the best journalists on this topic who have written this year, I think, in very forceful ways, just to hopefully uh, express to you the conviction that there are real merits on both sides of these and that the problems we are having are not in defining genuine, legitimate problems on both sides, but in figuring out solutions. So this is Jelani Cobb writing last fall in The New Yorker. <clears throat> Faculty and students at both Yale and the University of Missouri who spoke to me about the protests were very careful to point out this was the culmination of long simmering concerns. Quote, it's clear student anger and resentment were long in coming, someone told me. This is not about one or two things. It is systemic. We have to look at that. The most severe recent incidents at both Yale and Missouri, shouts of the N-word directed at a black student at Missouri, a white girls only Yale fraternity party, sound familiar to anyone who works at or has any substantial contact with an institution of higher education. Last month, women in civil rights groups filed a Title IX complaint that campuses have not done enough to rein in Yik Yak, an anonymous forum that efficiently serves as a clearinghouse of digital hate. Last year at the University of Connecticut, where I teach, white fraternity members harassed and shouted epithets at members of a black sorority. The incident generated an afterlife of hostility on internet forums. Black female students were derided and ridiculed. Eight months ago, fraternity members at the University of Oklahoma were filmed singing odes to lynching. These are not abstractions. This is where the argument about freedom of speech are tone deaf. The freedom to offend the powerful is not equivalent to the freedom to bully the disempowered. The Enlightenment principles that undergird free speech also prescribe that the natural limits of liberty lie at the precise point where it begins to impose on the liberty of another. Here's Connor Friersdorf responding to that piece in The Atlantic, again just last fall. The thorniest question of all, what should be done about the fact that many black students at institutions as different as Yale and Missouri feel they inhabit campuses with racist climates where they are not welcome. Insofar as free speech is invoked during such controversies about race on university campus, it is because many leftist activists believe one necessary remedy for racism is for administrators to punish speech that they regard as problematic. But the First Amendment flatly prohibits that remedy at the University of Missouri and all public institutions. For observers like me, there is tremendous interest in zealously defending that civil right not only because it protects the vocation that Jelani Cobb and I share, but for a reason articulated powerfully by the ACLU. Free speech rights are indivisible. Restricting the street speech of one group or individual jeopardizes everyone else's rights because the same laws or regulations will use to silence bigots can be used to silence you. 
Laws that defend free speech for bigots can be used to defend the rights of civil rights workers, anti-war protesters, lesbian and gay activists, and others fighting for justice. And I read you both these journalists to hopefully remind you that you can locate yourself in both of their interests and in their complaints, and that going forward as we talk about this, probably the most important work is going to be hearing the other side, even when it makes you crazy. Thank you very much. And now for something completely different. <laughs> um, let the room settle down. Uh, first of all, thank you, John, for inviting me to be here. I feel way out of my element. Uh, and Dahlia, I have to follow that. Um, thanks. <laughs> Dahlia and I have had a, a really rich conversation about this uh, two months ago on the deck, back deck of my house. Uh, so I'm not here as an academic or um, as certainly not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm a performer. I'm a writer. I, uh, I'm also a Jungian depth psychologist. I studied Jungian psychology. And I'm the daughter of uh, George Carlin. So I'm here in those capacities, and I'm just going to speak very briefly about some things that I've jotted down. I wrote like a nine-page speech on this, and then I was like, screw that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, uh, just yes, 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 every, just standing on the shoulders of the two people that have already gone before me um, around all of this. Uh, so one thing I want to talk about, uh, in being the daughter of my father, one of the most important things to me is to um, keep his legacy alive. And when you keep someone's legacy alive, you're talking about history. And I lived this history. And so if I could sit down um, with students who want to talk about suppressing free speech, I'd like to tell them my story. And part of my story is being a child of the 60s. I was born in 63. Uh, by the time my dad became the counterculture hero, too many college students in America, uh, I was nine, eight and nine years old. My dad took me to, we went, we went to Kent State on a tour, my dad took me to the memorial to show me what had happened to the students on Kent State when they got shot by the National Guard. Um, I was at Summerfest. Uh, in the summer of 1972, my dad was hired to be a comedian, open for Arlo Guthrie, actually, at an open-air festival in Milwaukee called Summerfest. I like to describe it as kind of a, an island of sausage surrounded by a, a moat of beer. <laughs> That's basically what Summerfest is. Uh, the summer of 72, my dad had recorded his class clown album, which was going to include the um, seven dirty words you could not say on television, and they are shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. And, um, but the person that had hired him to be at, at Summerfest didn't quite know about this routine yet because the record hadn't come out yet. So my dad goes on stage and is doing his normal stuff, and he's peppering language throughout this stuff. Uh, and uh, at some point, and it, there's like 
30,000 people in this audience, and the person on stage can be heard throughout the fairgrounds. And at one point, my mom and I are in the wings, and I'm one of those children who was not coddled, who did hear all of this language at a very young age. I'm okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, the promoter comes up to my mom and says, um, the cops are here, and they don't like the language, and they're going to arrest George the minute he gets off stage. This was a very real thing for our family. My dad at this time had hair down to his butt almost and did drugs and represented the freaks, represented the, uh, the people who were out of control on campuses <laughs> protesting. He wasn't one of them, he was a little older, but uh, so it felt very dangerous to be in that camp during this time in America. And part of that had to do with speech. So my mom uh, takes a glass of water and walks out on stage to tell my dad that he's going to be arrested when he gets off stage because the reason she has to tell him is because my dad has cocaine and marijuana in his pockets and she doesn't want it to be a drug arrest. So my mom goes out and whispers in my dad's ear, the cops are here, and we know the cops are over on this side, so my dad decides to exit on this side. But before he exits, my dad doesn't just wrap things up, no. He goes into the seven dirty words routine. <laughs> because that's who my dad was, <laughs> a radical anti-authoritarian. We go backstage. I know what's going on. I know my parents do drugs. I know that the cops are about to arrest my dad. We go into the dressing room. My mother is stashing the drugs. Uh, the door is locked. It's very tense. I'm nine years old, and someone pops a balloon while we were there, and being a young kid, I thought the cops were already shooting at us. It was terrifying. I was hysterical, lost my mind. I was a terrified little girl who really believed that um, and was not quite sure that if these policemen took my dad, that if I'd ever be able to see him again. I just didn't understand what was going on. He was arrested. Um, my mother uh, knew what to do. She went and got herself a, a civil rights attorney because my mom had watched Lenny, go, Lenny Bruce go through the same thing 10 years earlier and was actually there one night when Lenny and my dad got arrested in Chicago. So... I, and by the way, dad was bailed out for like 250 bucks two days later. <laughs> All was well. And what, the, and what the attorney said to my dad was, we're going to keep uh, asking for continuances until we get a judge who understands what the First Amendment is about. And they did, and everything was fine. Uh, but that was 10 years after Lenny Bruce, who Lenny Bruce was getting arrested for saying things about religion on stage, because, and Catholic policemen didn't like that. So, you know, it's, this history is important, and so I represent this history, and um, I, I just, I, I want people to know, I want students to know that uh, there's a consequence to censorship, and that it doesn't, it, that it, eventually it will backfire. And I truly believe that what we're seeing now, today, with this Trump candidacy and people who follow him and say that the reason they like him is because he tells it like it is, was seeded in the political correctness that started in the 90s. I, I really believe that this is a natural progression of this. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, some people on the left who are talking about this more and more and that understand that political correctness actually, I believe, has created Trump. <laughs> and it's a very unpopular position on the left. Um, but I'm not, I'm not going to get into that to here today. Um, something we can talk about later. Um, that, and I want to talk a little bit about being a performer and comedians in general. Um, 
it's an interesting time because like I said, my dad, when my dad went from being a clean cut comic to a counterculture guy, the only places he could perform were on college campuses. He couldn't do dinner theaters anymore <laughs> because <laughs> the people he was doing the dinner theater to were the parents of the people that he was actually were his audience now. And there were no comedy clubs in 1970 and 1971 and 72. So it, the irony, the strangeness, the world that I've woken up in where my father could not go on a college campus today and say the things that he would want to say with his comedy is just feels so strange to me. And so I have empathy for people like Seinfeld and Bill Maher and Chris Rock who talk about this because comedy is a monologue. It's not a dialogue. And... Um, and comedy, you know, my dad used to talk about comedy. It's, you know, he really believed that his job was to find the edge, to find the line, what made people uncomfortable, and walk you across it. Mm -hmm. That was his job. And his job was to do it through laughter. Because when we're laughing, all of our defenses are down, and new information can actually enter our minds. And so my dad's didn't believe that his first job was to cross the line. He, he believed his first job was to make you laugh. But he really understood that his job was to take you out of your comfort zone. That is what I feel good comedy and good art does. Takes you out of your comfort zone. And unfortunately with comedy, jokes are constructed in such a way that someone has to be the butt of a joke. There's always an object in a joke. And... You know, that's kind of the crux of the, the argument here, is that some people want to make a list of the objects you're not allowed to make jokes about. And who are those list makers? Who, who are the people who get to be in charge of this list? Um, well, they've changed over the years. That used to be the king, used to be the church, used to be the government. Um, and now it's people uh, that some people call social justice warriors, which... I hate that term because I happen to be one of them too. <laughs> Once again, I'm like Dahlia. I'm on both sides of this argument. Uh, but this is the interesting thing. This, so who gets to decide who are the objects of these jokes? And a well-written joke, a person who's really intelligent and funny and good, um, knows that the object of the joke should always be someone in power or of authority, that it should be a punching up and never a punching down. Um, but people worry about things like rape jokes, that rape should never be a joke. And um, as my dad uh, said, uh, that rape can be funny, especially if you picture Porky Pig raping Elmer Fudd. <laughs> but, you know, so there's ways to talk about this stuff. Um, thank you. <laughs> Some people got the visual. So the point is, is that who's making the list of what the objects are? Now, the, the people who are trying to protect speech and protect things are what they call these social justice warriors, who are people trying to protect their feelings. And I would say that this is a very subjective experience. Having feelings are subjective. And being turned into an object is not a good feeling. And I think this is really part of the conflict in all of this. And as a Jungian depth psychologist, a person who studies the unconscious 
and uh, what's really going on deep down inside. That's where I like to look at all of this stuff. And I, and just coming here and having to stand up here and just even think about all this stuff um, is, is really gotten me thinking. I, I, mean, I think I could probably write 25 pages on this, and I pr probably eventually will. But, you know, comedy's job, performer's jobs, art's job is to help people ultimately empathize and get into other people's shoes, to understand someone else's subjective experience. Even if you are a comedian and you're making someone the object of your joke. And when we do that, when we can see each other and empathize in each other's positions, we start to see our own unconscious biases. And I think that's really the conversation that all of us are having here. That how do we begin to unravel and create space to identify our own unconscious biases? And nobody wants to do this. It is really uncomfortable to get feedback and to, to see that we have our own biases built into who we are and our worldviews. And so as an artist, as a performer, as a psychologist, as a daughter of a comedian, I just want to invite that conversation. How do we, how do we start to build a framework, build a structure inside campuses where worldviews, all of them can be identified? And I loved your teaching method because in 1992, I was a First Amendment student at UCLA. Jeffrey Cowan was my professor. And we had to do a blue ribbon panel. And our blue ribbon panel was about funding the... Um, the uh, National Endowment for the Arts. And each of us had to take an actual role of a person who was going to fight either pro or con in funding. And this is like during the nasty five, the nasty art funding when, you know, Christ piss and all this and, you know, Karen Finley and all these people uh, were being attacked. And I decided that the, if I was going to get the most out of the class, that I was going to play the role of someone who was a member of Focus on the Family. And I came in as a Christian fundamentalist, and I argued for my position. And it was the greatest bit of education I'd ever had in my life, because clearly I had not grown up with that perspective. <laughs> so I've got a million things I could say, but we are short on time. I just want to. I just want. Just I want to offer that it's time for us to have a conversation in this country about things where we really actually connect and see each other. I wrote this kind of internal monologue of someone. And this person says, the system is broken. We need to change it because the way it is is hurting my people. My sense of identity is being ignored. I am deep down inside very afraid for my future. I am unsure of the world around me these days. Everywhere I look, nothing represents me. Nothing reminds me of me. There are people with a voice that I do not identify with. There are people speaking words that I find offensive and ridiculous. There are no more safe spaces for me to be in. I must fight for them now. I must fight for my life now or I may not survive. I would say that this internal dialogue is going on inside of people who identify with Donald Trump and see him as a hero, and people on campuses who identify as social justice warriors and want to create safe spaces for themselves. And I think this is where we need to start. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
We have a few minutes. Let me start by asking the panelists whether they wish to respond to each other before we go to the floor. May I? Please. Please. Um, first of all, I have never been so gratified to share a panel with individuals who come from different walks of life and, and professions, but we come together so well in terms of our overall message. So hats off to John for, again, having the talent to do that. Um, the one thing that I wanted to comment on, and this is something that really means a lot to me, and I think both Dahlia and Cal Kelly sort of commented on this, and, and Dahlia, you said it very artfully, when you have this aspect of appreciating someone else's right to express if you wanted to have your right to express, which, is, which I think is very huge. And the other one is being able to empathize. And this is one of the things that I found when I had my students work in various uh, venues with people who were different than they. This correlates a lot with individuals that I've met who are part of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is so prevalent right now in the overall conversation. And the one thing that they have talked about was the worry that they have about speech codes on campus for the very reasons that you both had articulated, and that is, those codes which are meant to, quote unquote, stop offensive speech in some way, is oftentimes used against the very disadvantaged groups that we were talking about. And they are very much concerned about that. So I just wanted to sort of start it off by saying I very much appreciate that I'm hearing that in a variety of different circles of individuals who either have been marginalized or those individuals who are of disadvantaged groups who really worry about those codes. It's that whole idea, I've got, you've got to let people express themselves if I'm gonna be able to express my own ideas. Yeah. In the back. Yep. Mm -hmm. Corporations that ran America lied to us, advertising on TV, wherever it was. So if the lessons we were learning as we grew up was, if I want power, lying is the best way. Mm -hmm. Blake, I was just asked Beautiful. to repeat the question because... <laughs> <laughs> 
because it's being recorded. And since I am not up to that task, I'll ask you to take a shot oh at it by way of reply. <laughs> I was so hoping you were going to do that, John. <laughs> um, and and if, if, I, if I misquote the question, I hope the gentleman back there will correct me. From what I gather, the, the whole gist of your commentary has to do with what can universities, and I'd say educational institutions, do in order to instill in, in students and, and, and truly be change agents in recognizing how truth and veracity have to be sort of carved into this notion of civility and how people speak and that that is a foundational sort of point. And how do we, how do we infuse that in, in our pedagogy? Did I? Okay, okay. So, um, let, let me, I see, see some hands up. Should I attempt to answer? Would you like to chime take, into this? Take a shot, Blake, and then we'll call on others. Oh, okay. All right. So, so, so let me say uh, one thing, and I, I certainly don't have the answer to this. I've taught at a number of universities and um, now being the dean of two law schools and having talked with, with university presidents, the, the one thing that concerns me a little bit of what's happening on college campuses, and I think both Dahlia and Kelly articulate that very well, is the idea that the concept of civility is narrowly tailored in terms of really maintaining civility in terms of behavior on college campuses. Mm -hmm. Instead of having this much more intellectual discussion about civility also being the notion of putting forward facts. So one of the things that, that I do in my classes is really emphasize the fact that in addition to being able to create a space where people can communicate well, you have a sort of moral obligation in order to get forward truth and honesty so that you have credibility for people who are going to be listening to your various points. The thing that I've recognized on many college campuses today, and certainly the ones that I flashed up on the screen, is that, and this sort of goes into the point that I talked about administrators being proactive rather than reactive. When they're reactive, they're not thinking very probatively about the overarching goal of making sure that people have credibility. They're more thinking about how do I tamp down on any kind of conflict so that there's, there's sort of this maintaining of peace on campus. I think that's short-sighted, and I think the point that you make is a very good one in terms of how they should be proactive. And that is not only do, would you like to have a space where individuals feel free to speak, but when you do speak in order to be persuasive, you've got to have credibility, and that brings in the truth component that you were talking about. Well, and, and I would just point out too that I think one of the things about identity politics is that it's made, it's confused subjective truth with, obje with objective truth. Mm -hmm. And that this, um, I'm just thinking of Stephen Colbert's term truthiness, yes. that this is, we live in like a post-truth factual yeah. culture or yeah. something. It's so confusing. So I, I think that that's part of it too, is that, you know, we've, we've come to a, a swing in the, in the pendulum where subjective truth has, has gotten its, its day and it's now come to a point where it's, it's the only truth yes. and there's this other truth that we need to swing back towards the middle on, which is there's this thing called objective truth with facts and things like that. So it, I think that really muddies the water in all of this. Yeah. And, and, and one other note, I would just say 
you know, if we're defining terms carefully, I think civility is a term that desperately <laughs> is in need of definition. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because I think civility has, has sort of come to mean niceness or self-censorship or the absence of sharp disagreement. And, and I, I certainly don't think anyone um, at, on this panel or at this conference is for civility as defined by making people feel happy about their ideas. <laughs> or beige. So I just think, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. there might yeah. be, but I, I just think, you know, civility has, has kind of gotten a bad rap as kind of cuddliness. And I don't think it's cuddliness. I think it is, you know, very much, you know, speaking to someone as though they are of worth and mm -hmm. taking into account, uh, you know, their sensitivities and values. And I just think, you know, we have to be very, very careful if, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, 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 the uh, a school sort of imputing, uh, you know, niceness onto the classroom. I don't think that's what anyone is no. advocating. No, remember what you said about <clears throat> critical thinking. And that's a very big element in the liberal arts, and certainly it is in college. And that whole idea of critical thinking is that you welcome contrary thoughts. Right. And you want to give it in a space where people are listening in to each other and able to really digest what are the different points of view. And maybe at some, we may agree, we may not, but you have a right to express it in, in a respectful way so that we all get heard. Yes, ma'am. Otherwise, we have to paraphrase. We have a technological event. Okay, thank you. Uh, I just want to take this opportunity to commend uh, this forum, this symposium, and the individuals participating this afternoon because I don't know who put it together or if the order of speaker was intentional, but you, it was brilliant because... Uh, if you liked it, it was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I loved it. And I came in honestly rather skeptical about the whole, the whole uh, subject matter. But um, Dean Morat uh, just, I thought, clarified for me what the entire uh, problem, the genesis of our problem is. It's civil discourse. Discourse today is cheap. Talk is cheap. Mm -hmm. People know how to talk. They know how to shout. They know how to yell. They know how to talk over each other. Mm -hmm. What we're lacking is the civility. Mm -hmm. So to give an overview of, of the entire subject matter today uh, and emphasize the civility, uh, which only means to be able to channel um, constructively an opportunity for everyone to speak. Mm -hmm. Then for, for you to underscore, Ms. Lithwick, uh, the desire for empathy yeah. uh, and um, mutual uh, and the means to 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 acquire that uh, through mutual respect in speaking uh, was building on the need for civility, mm -hmm. and then for for you, Miss Carlin, to come full circle uh, on the matter and and pr propose the uh, uh, point you made at the very end mm -hmm. about how both sides even both extreme sides can be approaching the same problem from different uh, uh, ends of the spectrum, uh, clarified, I think, where we are. And, and I would politely submit that college campuses, and I pray that this continues, mm -hmm. college campuses uh, are, should exist for the purpose of developing civil discourse amongst your students. Mm -hmm. 
from all walks of life, right. all backgrounds, all empathies, <laughs> uh, so that you do prepare them for that real world that I believe it was Miss Lithwick said is not a college campus, mm -hmm. but it should be a preparatory step toward the real world because if we can't conduct ourselves civilly in our discourse uh, in the real world, then there's very little hope. Yeah. And I, I really feel that that's the thrust of, of what you, you, you scholars, academics should be doing. Thank you for that. Thank comment. you. Thank you very much. Let's have your well, one last question, please. Well, let's be clear about who is having the problems with free speech in society, and it's the right wing. The right wing is being uh, discriminated against. You've seen it with the, the guy Douglas Muir, the, uh, the UVA lecturer. The UVA lecturer who brought up the point, which is a valid point, which can be debated that Black Lives Matter is a racist organization. Now, we could have that debate, or we could fire and shame and silence somebody like that. And in order to have the discussion that's really going to enrich society, we have to have a diversity of viewpoints. Is anybody on the panel a Donald Trump supporter? No, no you're all center-left politicians quoting center-left uh, uh, media people. And, and, and I appreciate the points that you're bringing up. I appreciate them. They're good points because I'm not necessarily a right winger. I am a free speech person who is sick and tired of the left pouncing and shaming and trying to destroy people's livelihoods. And where is the diversity of intellectual debate on college campuses? 87% of professors are liberals. 13% are conservatives. We have, we need a conservative conservative person up here. We need a right-wing person. If you don't know Milo Yiannopoulos, you need to Google Milo Yiannopoulos and be listening to people like him. We need right-wingers in this debate, or there's no free speech, period. Well, we thank you for so, filling that. Can, I, can yeah. I say something? There is something called the alternative left, and they stand with you on this, yeah. and they truly do believe that political correctness is ruining this country. I'm, I used to be a left winger. So, I voted for Obama and twice, so I, and I've been pushed away because I'm tired of the censorship. Yeah, I, I'm tired of college campuses becoming indoctrination centers. Where is the debate? If you're gonna, if you're gonna, here, here. You you may volunteer for whatever status you want, but can I? Can I? We are uh, and not. Not wow. Okay. Can, can I say? If you will please. Can, can I just say? Yes. Of say, course. Say, last, last word. Last, we break last forth. question. I'm, ve I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying. And, and you may not agree with me. And you may already pigeonhole me. I have always. I, I don't even know I you. I don't even know who you I are. Don't know, I don't even know you. I, I, I don't even know you. Okay, but 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 let me and just here simply, we are. Let, let me just here we are, America. Here we are. <laughs> let me just simply say, really? I have never it's sort happening. of put out there what my political views are. As as dean of a law school, I never have any. I may have some personally, but I try not to put them out. The one thing that I do understand is that what you have said has basically been emblematic of what we're talking about, and that is that idea of really having an open forum where people can express their ideas 
and say what they can in a way where we can both understand our positions. And, that, and that's one of the things that I teach my students. And that's one of the things that comes out of that exercise, is that they get an opportunity to understand the other positions. Let me give you a preview, let me give you a preview of the rest of today and tomorrow. We will take a short break and then convene at 2.45 for another panel. We start tomorrow at 9 a.m. And if you are interested in talking to university administrators, we'll have a collection of them at that time, including the president of this university. But for the moment, uh, coffee, tea, sodas, bathroom breaks, back here please at 2.45. <laughs>